This morning's scripture reading is taken from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. The text can be found in your Blue Pew Bibles on page 154. Page 154 in your Pew Bibles. Hear now the word of the Lord from Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. All right, if you are age uh, three to first grade, you're more than welcome to be dismissed to Children's Church. The rest of us are going to continue in our, our little our journey here through the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> which uh, the, the, Today we're on the Second Commandment, which uh, Sarah just read for us. <clears throat> I'm really excited to, 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 to um, preach um, this text to you uh, th- this morning. It's... Um, Something that I think is just so, I look at God's commands, I'm always amazed at how uh, wise, how helpful, how game-changing they are, if you will. And um, this morning, I think the second commandment, which may seem somewhat foreign or uh, really irrelevant to our lives, um, actually, I hope, will will prove to be something that is um, truly life-changing and game-changing. So let's, uh, let's jump into this, consider the second commandment. Uh, when I was in uh, sixth or seventh grade, I had a grandfather figure in my life who was truly um, uh, a source of, of incredible just uh, benefit and privilege. And he, he, uh, he had a cabin up in the mountains. If you've been to our home, you'll notice above our, our mantle, pla- our, on our mantle, the fire, our fireplace is a, is a picture of the of mountains, and those mountains are depict an area where I, um, I, I spent a significant amount of time as a kid. We'd go up in the mountains, and there's a cabin that you, you can't see it in the, in the actual painting itself. There's a cabin up there, and my grandfather figure friend, he would take me there often in the summers, and I would explore all throughout the mountains there, the East Rosebud Lake, Absorkey uh, Mountain, um, uh, drainage area. It was just a beautiful, beautiful area. And so he, 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 um, he just... You know, he poured out all kinds of love upon me, and, and one of the things that he did, if you can believe this, one summer, um, one summer evening, we had him over for dinner, and he talked about how he had loved to travel. He was a bachelor all his life. He, he loved to travel, but whenever he traveled, he felt like a fifth wheel, because he would travel with other couples and things that he didn't know one to travel with. And it was in the middle of the summer, actually toward the end of summer, and I was downstairs doing something mischievous. And I think it was probably terrorizing the cat or something. And my mom overheard me. And she said, well, whenever you want, you can take Bruce with you, you know, on, on, on a journey. And, and he kind of stopped and he said, you know what? That's actually not a bad idea. And the next summer, I think it was the summer after my seventh grade year, my, my sort of this wonderful grandfather figure, his first name was Dewey. Dewey and I uh, were off on a trip to see um, the land of Egypt. And we spent, not only in Egypt, but we, I was the first of like, of three, I think three or four journeys that we took together overseas. And I was sort of his, 
you know, he's the guy who carried the bags and stuff like that, and we went together, and he, um, and I won't go into the details of how that all worked, but one of the places, one of the first places we went was Egypt, because he had always wanted to go there. Even as a kid, he would fall asleep at night with, like, the Encyclopedia Britannica, you know, open to the great pyramids of Giza. And I can remember when we finally got there, it was the morning of, and we were, the tour guide was taking us, we all jumped in the taxi, we were in Cairo, and I can remember getting in the car, and we started driving toward the, uh, the pyramid, these great pyramids of Giza, right? And, uh, and I thought, oh, I can see the pyramid from here. We must, all, we, must, we must be close. And we kept driving. And then it got bigger, and we kept driving. It got bigger, and we kept driving. And we finally got there, and um, you, you get out, and you're simply overwhelmed. Uh, apparently, uh, it was constructed. The tour guide started explaining at the Great Pyramid, there's, there are three of them, but there's the Great One, the largest one. It was constructed over a 10 to 20 year period in 2500 BC. Think about that, 4,500 years ago. Think of it this way, biblically, from the time of the, by the time the Exodus happened, right? The, pyramid, the Great Pyramid was already a thousand years old. Isn't that amazing? It's the oldest of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And just under, originally just under 500 feet, it was the tallest man-made structure for, for almost 4,000 years. You know, we think today about someone builds some sort of tower and then someone else tops it off and whatever. Well, when the Pharaoh, when, when, when the Pharaoh built this thing, it was, he was, it was the tallest for almost 4,000 years. It's the oldest, I think I said this, it's the oldest of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Some of the stones... Weigh, listen to this, some of the stones weigh between listen, 25 to 80 tons each. When you're looking at it from far away, you look at the stones and think, oh yeah, those must be something you just sort of pick up, you just throw on there. Like, no, 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 these are stones that are 50 tons. Think about that. And this is, this is, this is way before forklifts, this is before hydraulics, etc. It was amazing what they did. In fact, some of, the, um, some of the, these stones... Um, came from the region of Aswan, which is more than 500 miles away from Cairo, down the Nile River. Okay, so you, you, when, you, when you go inside, and of course you go inside, there's the, the, the queen's uh, chamber and the king's chamber, and you go inside and it's just, you feel like, as a seventh grader, I feel like I'm you know, lost in an Indiana Jones movie or something, right? You go down there, they still have the sarcophagus there, and you're just, as a, as a seventh grader, I was just utterly blown away. I was taken, I was just so taken with wonder. It was, it was like nothing I had ever seen before. And it's interesting quite a bit coming from Montana. We have mountains and stuff like that, right? And I wanted to get a picture to capture just what I felt, the splendor, the sense of awe. And so I remember getting out of the tomb. We walked out and it had been all dark. We got in the sun, just the, the bright sun of Egypt. And, and I started, I remember, I think, oh, I'm just going to run 20, 30 feet and turn around, I'll get a picture of the pyramid. Right? And I go, oh, it doesn't quite fit in my camera. So I turned her again and walked back a few more, 15, 20 feet, and what? Tried again, and nope, still didn't work. And eventually, I went, going to the, the, the tour guide, or the Egyptian guy, he yelled, out at me, yelled out at me. He was laughing and shaking, and he, and he, shaking his head, and he said, Mr. Bruce, the Great Pyramid of Giza will not fit on your camera. <laughs> and I realized I couldn't back up far enough to create an image 
that could capture or do justice to the matchless majesty and splendor, the wonder of one of the seven wonders of the world. Okay? Perhaps you've had that same experience. I don't know if you've, ever, perhaps you've been out hiking or perhaps you've been outside at night and you've seen a moon, one of those amazing large moons. You think, oh, I'm going to get this on camera. And you, and you take a picture and you look at it and you think, no, I, it just doesn't do it justice. There's something that just doesn't work. And the second commandment is here to capture a really simple idea that the great God will not fit on a camera. Right? Why is that? Because he's like nothing you've ever seen. Now, if you can relate to this, we're close to understanding the second commandment. Okay, as Sarah Kinsey read for us, we are in Durham chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. And look, if you will, at the beginning of verse 8. Moses says these words, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or the waters below. The context here is one of devotion, one of worship. In the context of worshiping God, Moses forbids, or God forbids, that we create some sort of graven image, some sort of um, representation that is in the likeness of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. And we'll talk about that language a little more in a little bit. A little bit. But the first and second commandments are actually closely related. In fact, in some traditions, the first and second commandment are one and the same commandment. And there's, there's some real merit for that. But the, but the first commandment, which we, did, which we discovered last week, is all about the priority of Yahweh in worship. You shall have no other gods, that is to say, no other authorities before me. You shall have no other gods in my presence, if you will. It's a way of communicating. It's God is saying in the first commandment, I am the final interpreter. I am the final actor. My word is the last word. It's the best word. My actions are the final actions, the irreversible actions. So trust me first. Listen to me first. Fear me first. Know that when I act, no one can reverse it. Be on my side. If everyone else is saying white and I say it's black, guess what? It's black. You shall have no other authorities, no other influencers, no other interpreters, no other, no one else before me. And we see that captured. It's really brief. I want to illustrate the first commandment. Just because I want to review because it's so important. If, you, if you've got a few Bible, just turn really quickly to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. That's on page, the, the actual Pew Bible is on page 48. I'm going to take just a minute here to review because these first and second commandments are, are related to each other. And I want to take it, I want you to see the relationship between the two of them. So turn to Exodus chapter 1. Again, it's on page uh, 48 of your Pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along through that. I want you to see here the story of two women, okay, that, that who, who really capture the importance, the centrality of the first commandment. The very beginning of Exodus, God's people are in Egypt. They are being enslaved, or they're, they're about to be enslaved by, or they are being enslaved by the Egyptian, by the Egyptian Pharaoh. Again, this is a thousand years after the Great Pyramid. They would have been serving, they would have been enslaved um, by, the, by the Egyptians as, as they would look out and they would see the Great Pyramid there. And uh, 
And we're going to start in verse 15 here. It says, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives. Now, this is just incredible here. This is, this is a, a political way of controlling births. It's a, it's a, it's a way of, of, of subduing and controlling and managing a people group. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a, bo- is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Now imagine what that would be like. You are a, a midwife. Chances are you, you couldn't have children yourself, and, and so you, you devote your life to simply having other, you know, you're not married, you, you don't have children, so you, you, um, you devote your life to helping others have children. Imagine what it would be like. You're minding your own business, you're just, you're just doing your thing, and so one day you get, right, knock on the door, and there's soldiers outside, Egyptian soldiers, and they summon you into the presence of the Pharaoh, who is the image of Ra whose word and, and who deeds are final. And he commands you to do the thing that they've been commanded to do there. What kind of a person is going to simply say no to that? Well, look at verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God. That's what the first commandment's all about. You have no other authorities before me. I don't care if they're political if they're parental, whatever it might be, there are no other powers greater, no one to whom you need to bow your knee more than me. This is often referred to as the very first act of, of recorded civil disobedience. And you know, if you were to read through all the book of, of Exodus, you'd find there there's like two or three people named. There's Moses, there's Aaron, even the Pharaoh, we don't really know who he is. The Pharaoh's a title, it's not a name, it's not someone's name. It's a title. The only, the only two, the two persons who are named other than Moses and Pharaoh? These two lowly midwives. They're given names to be remembered. Why? Because they defied the Pharaoh. Isn't that crazy? I mean, what, what courage, what bravery, what resistance. How inspiring. They looked at Pharaoh and they said through their actions, you're not the final word in this world. That's what the first commandment's all about. It is an act of political defiance. It is an act of looking at the authorities in our lives, our corporate authorities, familial authorities, um, cultural authorities of Hollywood, of social media, and saying you do not have the last word. It's also a way of looking inside our hearts, our own personal preferences, and saying, you know what? You don't have the last word either. It's not about what I want. That's what the first commandment's about. The first commandment is answering the question, who has priority? Who is in charge before any other authority, before princes and politicians, before parents or professors or opinion polls or our own spouses or partners, before even our own personal preference? There is Yahweh, the one who is our unparalleled provider and promise keeper. That's the first commandment. It's about, it's about Yahweh's priority in worship. He is second to none. But if the first commandment is about Yahweh's priority in worship, the second commandment is all about Yahweh's portrayal in worship. 
It's the picture, we might say, of Yahweh. When we go to worship him, how are we, in, our, in our devotion to Yahweh, how are we to depict him? How are we to draw him, if you will? And the second commandment answers the question, this question, how should we depict him, in an utterly countercultural, counterintuitive way. When the, second, when the second commandment asks, how should we depict him? The answer, don't even try. Don't even try. And understand, again, in the ancient Near Eastern world, the second commandment was utterly bizarre. Now, now, that may seem strange to us, and I'll explain why that's so strange to us. But in the ancient world, let me try to explain, okay? And if you would, I don't know if Nancy, you've got that there. I'm going to pick up my assistant here. If she can help me, I'm going to portray something here up on the screen here. Take a look at the screen. What do you see? Here's the first thing we see. She's almost there. You can see it right already. You can see that that first symbol. What is that symbol? What's, a, what's that a symbol of? It's a logo, right? All of you know what that logo is. What? It's a Mercedes-Benz. Can you, can you enlarge that? Can you get that at full screen? Nancy, I don't know if you can do that or not. Go to the very bottom there, bottom right. You're almost there. There you go. Oh, that's a little bit to the right. Right there. Yeah, click on that. There you go. All right. Great. All right, we're there. Um, so obviously, you know, so what is this? Now just consider this for a second. When you see that logo or that emblem, what do you think? What's that? Wealthy. Wealthy? Okay. Affluence? What else? Expensive? Is that expensive? Excellence. Okay. That's shiny. It's, it's, it's chrome. It's, there's a sense of excellence. It's a permanence of endurance. See, listen, to this. the logo points to something beyond it. Go to the next one. You've already seen that. You all know what this is, right? Go ahead and hit the space bar there. There you go. What is that? It's Nike, right? Uh, Nike is, in the word, actually, the word Nike, Nike is actually Greek. It means victory. It means triumph. And here the swoosh is like, whoops, nuts. Keep stay there. Come back here. Um, this, um, she's trying to have the sermon move along faster. Right? <laughs> so this is a good, nice try, Nancy. I, I appreciate that. I'm, the, the, the congregation is with you. Um, unfortunately, the preacher is not. You know, that's the problem. Um, he's not on board, like, like with most things. Um, so Nike communicates this idea of, of, an, of a movement, of, of um, competition, of excellence. Um, it's, it's, um, it's seen as one of the most successful uh, logos of all time, the Nike symbol. Again, it points to something beyond that. Now, um, uh, like logos, images in the ancient world pointed beyond themselves, right? They, 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 they point to something more, to something more. The image, uh, the image itself has qualities or characteristics that are suggestive of the thing or person to which they are pointing. And it's the same thing with good portraits. Go ahead and go to the next, next, uh, next slide there. You see that? Now think about it. On the one hand, we could have a photograph. All of you know who that is. Who is it? Albert Einstein, and there's something about that photograph, though, that depiction, that's the sign of a great portrait um, maker, a great artist of portraits, is someone who can look at a person and capture not just the actual visual representation, but capture something about their personality, something about their vocation, something about who they are that says, you know, that is, it points to something beyond. Look at the next picture here. Who, who, who's that? Clint Eastwood. Does that not look like Clint Eastwood, right? It doesn't just capture who he is. It captures he's, he's rugged. He's kind of angry. He's kind of disgruntled, right? He's, he's, uh, he's dirty, hairy. He's, um, he's, he's all these sort of, I, there's something beyond it that captures. Go to the next one. 
I'm sure all of you will recognize this. Who's that? Marilyn Monroe. Do you see the pose? Do you see how she's expressing herself? This pointing beyond to just a picture of a person. It's, they're, they're, they're very, um, they're, they're alluding to something more. That's how images worked in the ancient world. Don't, 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 let's not be guilty of a sort of chronological snobbery that says, you know, what are those ancient peoples doing, you know, worshiping a rock or worshiping a piece of wood? They understood that the piece of wood was pointing to something more, something spiritual, something um, real, some real force, some real being beyond it, but they used the image as a way of capturing and, and, and communicating that God, just like a logo. And go to the next picture real quick here. There's another picture. It's a portrait. It's a, it's, a, it's a photograph, but it's a photograph that captures whom? Yeah, Mother Teresa, right? And she's she's looking up. There's a sense of of of, of reverence. There's a um, an awe. There's a, a sense of uh, you see her from her garb. A sense of um, devotion and um, service that we associate. So again, these images, ancient images functioned a lot like these various logos or portraits of, and, it, and it, it's just, it just makes sense. And now if we can, I don't know if Nancy, if you can do this, let's switch to, I'm gonna show you not just portraits or images, but another way that the, that, the, that the images or gods, the idols of the ancient world worked, were to point not only to concepts, but to actual stories and to ways of life beyond that. I don't know if, Nancy, if you can pull up for us a video. I want to show you a video of several, um, of, well, several, um, well, I'll just let you watch it here so you can kind of love to see your response to that. Yeah, if you can enlarge that and, and um, there you go. You see the enlarge the button there to the bottom right? No, actually. There you go. So he's going to have some help here from Beth. There we go. You can tell she doesn't spend. Oh, it's wonderful that Nancy doesn't spend time on YouTube. That's actually really commendable. Yeah, we should all clap. Give, so go ahead and hit the play button there. I'm going to turn it up a little bit. And most of you are familiar with that. You're familiar, almost all of you have watched a movie and beforehand you see the 20th Century Fox introduction. What comes to mind when you see that sort of representation? In fact, you can go to the next one. Uh, it's a little bit, little bit later here. Um, it's, what is that? There you go, excellent. Uh, good, perfect, right there. Was you've seen this before? Right? When you hear that before you're watching a movie, what sort of connotations are coming to mind? Or go to the next one. Those of you who are kids, I think you'll be able to relate to, uh, to this one. I think it's a, here we go. Okay. So that, that evoke, we see that and something is conjured up in us that points to something more. Let's do, let's do just, let's do one more. Oh, maybe let's just, we're all here. We're well just do a few more just for fun, right? So go to the next one. Oh, there you go. I think you got it. 5.42. Great. This is probably my favorite. Cue up the 
next to him. When you hear the, this, what's going on? You did this, 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 this amazing uh, orchestra. Did, the, did you hear the actual vocals in the background? It's just, oh, right? These, like, these, 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 there's sort of this, this choral, sort of semi-religious sense of awe of something, of something great is about to happen. And it's a picture of what? The world, right? And it's turning, and there's this sense of universal. There's, there's some, it's pointing to something beyond and more. Go finally to 618. Those of you who are little ones, you will um, certainly, well, actually all of you at little, of, of any age will recognize this. It's universal. saw that last one, I would, I, would, I, would, I would instinctively grab my blankie, sit down, and do what? Put my thumb in my mouth, thinking, I don't know what I'm about to see, but it's going to be good. Right? Sword fighting, good guys, bad guys, romance, laughter, it's all about to happen. See, these, this is, I want you to understand, this is how images and idols worked in the ancient world, in a lot of ways, nothing has much changed, because we have our own images, don't we? We have our Nike, we have our Mercedes, we have, um, you know, we have our Ben Franklins, right? We have our money, we have images of persons, of presidents, we have the notion of money. We look at a dollar bill, or we look at a $50 bill, a $100 bill, and it communicates a points beyond something, doesn't it? I don't know, sometimes you ladies or more guys too, when you walk out of a, you turn around and you turn, you're, you're in the chair at the salon, you turn around and you see yourself all dolled up and it has a power to it, right? Oh yeah, it has a, has a sense of, I look good, it has a sense of, it goes beyond this, the mere rearrangement of hair to something more. Think about when you're dressed up and you look sharp, you just have some new clothes, you're thinking about clothes, you look at yourself in the mirror and think, yeah, there's a sense of, of, of capacity, of ability, of attractiveness, that, that this, is, again, this is how uh, idols worked in the ancient world. They were, a kind, they were kind of like a logo for the gods. And then comes along the God of Israel. And those of you who are in marketing, if you've ever been in this sort of advertising, imagine if I started a company and I said to you, you know what, we're just not going to have a logo. What do you mean you're not going to have a logo? Yeah, we're not going to have like any sort of like, you know, cool video like that. We're not going to do anything like that. It's just we're just not going to do it. See, the second commandment is this horrible marketing strategy. Horrible. The second commandment, let me read it again. You shall, you shall, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. And again, this is this horrible marketing strategy that makes the nation say, where is their God? It says something, the second commandment says something that sets Yahweh apart from the rest of the gods of the ancient world. You can't depict Yahweh with anything in this world. Why? Because he's not like anything in this world, he's like nothing you've ever seen. How, how so? 
So the ancient Near Eastern gods were all bound up with the created world. There was the sun god, there was the moon goddess, there was the goddess of fertility, etc., and on and on and on. That each god had its own, uh, its own little kingdom, its own little dominion, the sea or the sun or whatever it might be. And here's the idea. They all, each and every one of them, had their constraints. But Yahweh had no constraints. Uniquely, this is what I want you to hear this morning, Yahweh dwelled outside and above the created system. How many of you have seen in movies when, let's say, a law enforcement officer comes to the door? Maybe he's a policeman and he shows his local municipal badge. Or maybe he's, um, you know, from the state in some way. He's a, federal, he's, a, he's a ranger or he, you know, whatever it might be. But he has some sort of identification or an FBI agent. He has this FBI card or something like that. Hi, we're from the FBI. And that badge, that image, communicates both their capacities but also their constraints. This is what I can do. This is what I can't do. I have the authority to do this, but I don't have the authority to do that. So it communicates both their capacities and their constraints. And so let me ask you, those of you who are kids, would it work if I took a badge, let's say an FBI badge, and I put it on James Bond? Would that accurately communicate what Bond is capable of doing? Well, let's say I put it on Jason Bourne, or even better, let's say I put that badge on Captain America. Would that badge sufficiently communicate the capacities of Captain America? No, Captain America can do way more than any, any random police officer. And that's what's so key. Do you hear that? A badge, an image like that, would, would underestimate the capacities of a superhero. Their capacities to do what? What does James Bond do? What, what does Jason Bourne do? What does Captain America do? They save the world. <laughs> Are you with me? They save the world. See, what we love about these characters like the Avengers is precisely that they are outside of the system. Why? Because the system has constraints. Because we all know the system is really what? Corrupt. It's corrupt. So if you just appeal to some police officer, you appeal, appeal to the CIA, right? The CIA is always corrupt, right? You watch all the movies. We all know that they're out to whatever. And so there's a sense that inside the system, inside the created order, there are always constraints. And there's always corruption. And to identify Yahweh with anything inside that is to underestimate him in a way that will prevent us from seeing his majesty and his greatness. And here's the key idea, his ability to save, his ability to deliver. The bottom line, brothers and sisters, of the second commandment is this. Do not underestimate Yahweh. Because when we do that, it leads to one thing, and one thing only. It leads to despair. I think it's really practical all of a sudden. Are you despairing in your marriage right now? Are you despairing in your spiritual life? You look and see certain things, and think, I'll never change. 
My spouse will never change. I'll never be a better spouse. I'll never be a better parent. I'll never, this, you think these things will never change. I look at the system, and the system is not going to change. And Yahweh insists, he says, do not identify me with anything in creation. I know your propensity to underestimate me. And the second commandment calls us, it invites us, it urges us this morning to ask, how big is your God? How mighty, how majestic, how outside the system is your God? What is he able to do? And so in our devotion, we're not to draw him or depict him in any way. Why? Because he is our devoted deliverer. Look at the rest of these verses. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, You shall not bow down to these gods, these images, or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He's devoted to us. He wants all of us. He wants all of our devotion, all of our love, because he, he, he alone is able to deliver us. And he's saying, look, understand, if you don't do this, if you, under, if you underestimate you, it will have consequences for you and for your family. It says there, he punishes the children for the sins of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. The word here, hate, is somewhat an unfortunate translation. The word hate, both in Hebrew and Greek, can have the connotation of not, right, not outright hostility. This isn't talking about the enemies of God. It's talking about the people of God, persons within the community of faith, who look at God and they underestimate him. They devalue him. The word hate here means to sort of degrade, to downgrade. It means to underestimate. She says, I don't like it when you look at me and think I'm just an average guy. Just an average God. And when you do that, know this, it will impact not just you, but several generations after. See, understand, in the ancient world, uh, especially in, in, in Israel being no exception. When you lived in a home or like a compound, it wasn't just you. It wasn't just a nuclear family. You usually had your, your parents. Like they, were, they, were, they were grandparents, maybe great-grandparents. There was four, three or four generations in a given household. And God is saying, listen to this, parents, Potter familius, you who are the head of the home, if you underestimate me, it will have consequences for your entire family. Not just you, but the children after you will suffer for the way that we just sort of underestimate and downgrade and discount and devalue the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who is outside of the system, the one who is our deliverer. But think about this. Look at verse 10. Look at the contrast here. He says, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know about you. I, I don't even think about the next generation. I think about my kids, but I don't think much beyond that. But he says, look, if you devote yourself to me, if you devote your life to pursuing me and seeing me for who I am in all of my majesty and all of my splendor and all of my incomparability, if you pursue me and worship me for all that I am with all of your heart, look at this promise in verse 10. He says, I am a God who will show love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You know, my parents came to faith 
in Jesus uh, right around the time they got married, uh, through, uh, through Young Life, and they were just, and they're out of, in the college, I'd gotten married, and uh, before the kids were born, and to see, of course, being the second generation uh, follower of Jesus, and to see now my children, uh, and, and not just my children, my nieces and nephews follow the Lord, and to do so wholeheartedly, to do with such love, it's so exciting to see God just interrupt a, an ancestry to interrupt a family line. He just breaks in with his grace, captures the hearts of a man and a woman who devote their lives and, and, and raise their four children with a reverence and an awe for the Lord and to see how that has just had a massive impact. My sister is married to a minister. My brother is a minister. My little brother was wise enough not to be a minister. But to see the impact that, that, that this simple family has had on the lives of so many. That's not, I'm not, no one's getting glory for that except God alone. And to think about the generation that is following, to think about the way that God is already using our children for the glory of God. Think about that. Are you Christian? Have you surrendered your life fully and completely to the God who is like no one you have ever seen? Are you underestimating him in your spiritual walk, in your relationships, in your workplace? Are, you, are, we, are, we, are we praying to the God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine? Let me make this very practical. Friday night, I was, um, I was going to pick up my son Winston at a birthday party. Uh, it was for Benjamin, right? It was for Benjamin. And... Um, and I was on my way there, it was over in the Fenton area. And I took a couple wrong turns, and I just, and that's, you understand, the car, like when I take a wrong turn, it's just utterly, I'm all about efficiency and productivity. So I just get angry, or whatever, I'm mad. So I'm already kind of in a bad mood, and I, 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 we're kind of turning into this lane, and there's this guy on this, this massive bike, like a hog, right? And uh, he's got his girl behind him, and he's, he's dressed, it's, it's stereotypical, right? He's got like, the bandana on, and it's like nighttime, but he's got his, his sunglasses on, his big beard, and the and, and the big beer belly, right? And he just he just decides that he's gonna merge, just just right, just cut me off, like 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 just. So I had to like stop immediately, and he turns over, and he thought it was like my fault. He turns around, giving me this look, you know, of like, were you trying to kill me? And I, the my first thought is like, I could take you, I could take you down so easily. You and your beer belly. I mean, come on. You know what I mean? And that's, that's what I'm thinking. And my second thought is maybe I should just sort of come alongside and move over and just run him off the road. And this is your pastor. This is your pastor, okay? So the third thought, by that time God actually intervened. And he said, Bruce, you know, this, this man does not know Jesus. And maybe he does. I don't know. Maybe he does. We have a bad day. Who knows? I'm not, you know, I shouldn't judge. I shouldn't assume the worst. But let's just say that he doesn't know Jesus. Do you realize that God will never forget anything he's done wrong? Do you realize that God sees and knows his life? Do you realize that he will get everything that is coming to him? Do you realize that he will exercise one day, actually he will stand before a God of justice? Do you really need to be? Have you forgotten? Have you so underestimated me as a God of justice that you can't show mercy? See, when we know that God is a God of justice, we are freed to show mercy, 
That's Romans 12. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. I had forgotten, I had underestimated, I had defamed. God was far away, he was distant, it didn't inform my interpretation of life in any way, shape, or form in that moment. I underestimated him. And suddenly to bring him back into place, to recognize his justice, to recognize that it is his to avenge, it is his to repay, as Paul goes on to say, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. See, God's justice, when God's justice is front and center, and I don't forget it, I don't underestimate it, when God's justice is front and center, I am freed to show mercy, to love my enemies. This is the second commandment. How big is your God? You daily meditating and pursuing him. I would love nothing more than good shepherd to be a place where brothers and sisters are encouraging one another on in the pursuit of God. One thing have I desired, says the psalmist. One thing have I desired, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty, the majesty, the supremacy, the wonder of our God, the God who brings life from death, blessing from curse, the God who can take all that is evil and bring good out of it, the God who enables me to be like a Shifra and a Pua, who stand before Pharaoh and say, no, we will not do what you say. We will protect the, the unborn. We will protect the nobodies. We will protect the poor and the afflicted. No, you are not the final word. What an extraordinary life. I mean, don't you want to live a life of love, of sacrificial life, a life that, that is full of defiance, a life that is full of courage and bravery? This is what the second commandment is calling us to you. God is pleading with us. He's saying, don't underestimate me. Why? Because I'm, I'm not like anything you've ever seen. Let's, let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the goodness, the beauty, the majesty of the second commandment. Thank you for how it is so countercultural, how it is so, so counterintuitive, how it breaks us out of our little system. Father, in truth, this world is corrupt. It is constrained, but you and you alone are incomparable. You are above it. You are outside of it. You have nothing in any way that somehow constrains you. You are the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You give life and breath to all things. Even your enemies, Father, exist at your permission. Father, there is no wisdom, there is no insight, there is no plan that can succeed against you. And so, Father, this morning we bow our knees afresh. We surrender our hearts our relationships, our time, our money, our affections, our intellect, our wills. We bend them and we offer them to you who alone are worthy of all majesty and power and dominion and authority. There is no one like you, Father. There is no one like you, Jesus. There is no one like you, Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would reign in our hearts. Move us. So overwhelm us with your kindness, your goodness, your majesty, your justice. 
Oh, because you and you alone are our deliverer. You and you alone are mighty to save. Father, it's truly everyone does need compassion. Everyone does need forgiveness. They need the kindness of a savior who is like no one else, like no one we've ever seen. So Father, please overwhelm us with your goodness. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name.